Today we're starting a new series called Walking the Way of Jesus. As I reflect at the beginning of the year, I've realised that this is an area we want to step into as a church. There's a sense in my spirit that we need to be pushing into becoming more like Jesus. That maybe in this last season, these last couple of years, we've realised the importance of being able to walk his way, whether we are able to gather or not able to. And discipleship is the word we often use, is such a challenge to each one of us. And so I want to talk about what does it mean to do that? And the, the way we're going to do this is we're going to explore what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most famous uh, sections of scripture. If you've got one of those Bibles that has kind of fancy red letters in it, then it's just full of red writing. They're the words of Jesus. And so in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, you can get your Bibles open to that point there. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a way of understanding what did Jesus say and what does it mean for us today? How could we be equipped to live our best life, to live life the most successful way that we can? So we can start at the beginning. It's always a good place to start. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, just a couple of verses today to look at to get us started. So if you can start by imagining, if you will, the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is huge. I mean, it's not technically a sea, it's more like a lake, but it's so big, so vast, surrounded uh, by rolling hills. And those rolling green hills overlooking this vast expanse of water. And Jesus there on the hillside uh, next to the Sea of Galilee and crowds are coming to him. There are crowds gathering and Jesus is uh, is, is thinking, what am I going to say to all these people coming to see me? And so we're going to use the message version of the Bible, which is a paraphrased version of the Bible, because I think it brings this to life for us. And the words at the beginning of chapter five say this. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Create... um, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and started teaching his climbing companions. There's this moment, Jesus saw what was going on, thousands of people gathering. What did he do? He retreated further up the hillside and found a place to sit and to teach. Now, a couple of comments there before we go into verse three is I find it fascinating, Jesus' reaction to being celebrated. You know, many people these days just want to be celebrities. They want to be seen, they want to be known, they want to be famous. And rather than running towards the crowd, Jesus moved away from the crowd as if to say, if you're serious about learning from me, come, come with me higher up the hill. It's almost like I want to make it more difficult for you rather than make it easier for you. And it says there, it says that those who were apprenticed to him, or in other versions, the disciples, the committed ones, climbed with him. And my question today at the beginning, are we committed to Jesus, to going a bit further, to maybe where it's difficult, challenging, or do we say, actually, Jesus, we want it on our terms. Can you come down to us? And I find it fascinating. Jesus moved away from the crowd as if saying, the challenge is on you. If you want to hear, move towards me, creating space for the crowd, but not playing for the crowd. When you start playing for the crowd, you forget why you're doing that in the first place. And so Jesus moved up the mountain and it says there he found a quiet place and then he sat down to teach. And the reason that he would have sat down is in in those times, the Jewish teachers, the rabbis, would always sit to teach. 
and, and everyone else would stand to listen out of a sign of respect. We kind of roll reverse that these days. The person speaking tends to stand and the person, people listening tend to be seated comfortably. Uh, maybe we should switch that round at some point and get everyone to stand while I speak. Who knows? But Jesus sat and apparently when he sat, that was a sign that he was about to start teaching, that people would lean in. They would start to lean forward, to, to listen carefully. There was no microphones or PA systems, let alone live stream and technology and YouTube. They were just leaning in and listening to what Jesus had to say. Are you leaning in to what Jesus got to say? Because we have got three chapters, we're not doing them all today, don't worry, of everything that Jesus said. And the writer here, Matthew said, um, and then he said he taught them, but probably a better translation would be, this is what he used to teach them. Because, sorry to burst any bubbles of, of theologians in the room, but this probably wasn't a transcription of exactly what Jesus said on that one occasion. What it probably was, was probably a, a summation of all the times Jesus spoke. It was like a repeated message. Wherever Jesus went, he would say these things. Wherever Jesus travelled, he would teach them the same things. And his disciples, as particularly Matthew the writer here, would have heard the stories over and over and over again. And after a while we go, I know what this is. I know the punchline to this joke. I remember this story. And they would become really repetitive and really memorable. And so what Matthew is saying there, he sat down and this is what he would always teach when he sat with his followers. And then he lists out in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And sometimes we get this the wrong way around. We think that, you know, Jesus sort of travelled around with some sort of marketing programme with billboards and, you know, Facebook advertising, whatever he used, and the crowds would gather. But Jesus just did what he saw the Father doing, that he preached the, the word of God, that he talked about the kingdom of heaven, that he regularly performed miracles. And as he did what God called him to do, then the crowds gathered. He didn't chase the crowds. The crowds came to him. He was not trying to impress them. He was trying to challenge them. He was trying to teach them how to live the kingdom way. And my prayer today is for all of you listening, whether you're online or in locations or watching on Catch Up, please don't be impressed with anything I say or anything I do. Please would you be challenged and think, how can I more live like Jesus than I am doing today? It's been said that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest preach ever. It was Jesus' first public display, his first public uh, kind of announcements. But it's been said, if you took all the good advice of all the philosophers, psychiatrists, counsellors that have ever lived, and you took out all the, the unnecessary stuff and you boiled it down to the essence of all those great thoughts, you would still be left with a poor imitation of these words of Jesus. Many Christians and non-Christians would say, this is significant, what Jesus said. He himself spoke these words. And I don't want to get distracted by the, the layout of the scripture here. I don't want to get sidetracked by the different sections. It is sectioned up in different ways. We can talk about that. Uh, but if we're not careful, sometimes we get so focused on the mechanics of something that we forget the purpose of something. It's a bit like getting a new car and being more impressed by the handbook than we are by the fact it takes us from A to B in comfortable style, and hopefully a bit efficiently as well. But it's all about what is this saying to me? What's this story, these words he's telling me today? Let's focus on the message and ask ourselves the question, what is this saying to each one of us? Remember as well, the crowd were expecting a Messiah. The crowd that gathered were expecting a hero, a, a knight in shining in armour. They weren't expecting somebody who would tell wise sayings through innovative storytelling. 
That wasn't the person they were looking for. It was, it was flipping everything on their head. It was Jesus announcing the new way of doing business, that the covenant between God and his people. It's living the kingdom way, which is upside down living. It flips everything on its head. And as we go through this sermon the next few weeks, we're going to find some things that are just, wow, that's twisted. What happened there? And it flips on our head from what we assume it's going to be. So today we start with the first section, which is called the Beatitudes. Uh, the, the word beatus is basically means blessed. Um, the word there is, um, it can also be translated to English as beatitudes, that we should, these are attitudes we should be. These aren't things we should just hope for or, or wish for. These are things we should become. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the minister of Westminster Chapel for many years, said the Beatitudes are a list of how all Christians are to be like this. This incredible sermon is how to live your best life by fulfilling these Beatitudes. It's Jesus' declaration of the kingdom, the only true way to succeed at life. Are you ready? This is what he said. That's all the preamble. This is what Jesus started to say, his first opener. The crowd are gathered, they're leaning in. I hope you're leaning in. They're leaning forward, they're expecting. They come to this high mountain place, they're in this quiet space. Jesus sits down and this is what he said. His opening gambit was these words. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. That's his opening line. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope, with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Or in the New Living Translation, it says these words, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's his opener and it's significant. It's always significant when there are lists in Jewish writing, which one comes first. The order is really important here. Jesus went first with a blessed of those who are poor in spirit. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said this word, a ladder, if it is to be of any use, must have its first step nearest the ground, or feeble climbers will never be able to mount. It's a great image, isn't it? Imagine a ladder, the bottom rung must always be near the ground. It would have been a grievous discouragement to struggling faith if the first of the Beatitudes had been given to the pure in heart, to the excellent Otherwise, we'd have no chance. While poverty of spirit, we can reach without going beyond our natural strength. Everyone can start here on the bottom rung. It isn't the first blessed of the pure or the holy or the perfect or the spiritual or the wonderful. Everyone can be poor in spirit. Not what I have, not what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. What I have not got is where I start. Realising my deficiency before being trying to impress others with what I do have. The call to be this poor in spirit is placed first for a reason, because it sets up all the following beatitudes. It puts them into perspective. The idea they cannot be fulfilled by one's own strength. It's only by a beggar's reliance on God. And I think that word beggar is really important when we see ourselves as somebody starts by going, I have nothing offer here. If you don't understand your own need and your own poverty, you will struggle to uh, understand how to thirst after righteousness. If you have too high a view of yourself, you will find it hard to be merciful to others. We start by being poor in spirit. 
Sam Polk, who was a Wall Street um, trader, hedge fund trader, said these words. In my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million. And he said, I was angry because it wasn't big enough. It wasn't enough. And he carries on to say, I was 30 years old. I had no children. I had no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcoholic needs more drink. I was addicted. And he, he says this moment, he said, absolutely changed him. He realised that he was poor in spirit, that he was incredibly wealthy, but the aim of money, the love of money, had overtaken his life. And he walked away from Wall Street and he set up an incredible charity called Every Table. You can find it online, where they now provide for the, for the uh, poor community healthy food at the cost of uh, a takeout meal. And, and, and I love the fact that he just realised that money isn't what I'm chasing for. It's proving to me that I am poor in other areas. This is not about money. Being poor in spirit is not about being poor. It's about understanding that all the stuff we have isn't what's important. Are we poor in spirit? Are we poor in a different way? It's, um, the, the, this word, blessed, are the poor in spirit. The word blessed there is the word um, makarios. And that means happy or wonderful news or blessed or to be envied. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. The blessed are those. Not blessed will be those, but blessed are those. Present tense. It's not that if you, if you do the right thing today, then there'll be a future benefit to you sometime in heaven. It's like blessed are those today who recognise they are poor in spirit. It has nothing to do with having nothing. If anything, it might be more to do with having too much, that it can mask the reality of the need for God. It doesn't mean uh, miserable, being grumpy or being poor in a good spirit. It doesn't mean that either. It does not mean you have to give up in your life, that you're just, you're just finished. Poor in spirit means that you are blessed because you recognise that God is everything and that you are poor in the worldly spirit of saying no to self, of rejecting the natural instinct that is built within each one of us. Isaiah 57 says these words, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with whose spirits are contrite, with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. God restores the crushed spirit of the humble and revives the courage of those with repentant hearts. Or Isaiah 66, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. And after declaring who he is and how fast God is and what he has done, he then says... I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. The God who made the heavens and the earth wants to bless people who recognise that they have nothing and that God is everything. Throughout scripture, we see these heroes of faith with genuine humility who realise that moment that God is everything and they are nothing. You think of Gideon, the leader of the Israelites, who was there hiding away from the enemy. He said, I'm nothing, God. I'm the lowest of the lowest tribe. I cannot offer you a thing. Or the story of Moses, who said, who am I to go and speak to Pharaoh? Who am I to go and lead your people? 
but God used him anyway. Of David, the shepherd boy who became king. Of, of Isaiah who said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't do what you asked me to do. They came knowing they were poor in spirit and God used them in incredible ways. They knew they were spiritually bankrupt and needed God. Or Jesus, the ultimate example, which is talked about in Philippians 2, who gave up being God to become man, said this. This is the writer, Paul, to the Philippians, said this. You must have the same attitude of Christ. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead of he gave up his own divine privileges, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place, to the place of highest honour and gave the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in earth and, on earth and heaven and on under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To have the same attitude of Christ, the be attitude of Christ, who gave up everything to become nothing so he could fulfil the mission to reconnect us back to his Father, God in heaven. He was fully reliant upon God. There are some common misunderstandings when it comes to success in our lives, to succeed at life. Some people think, I can just buy it. I can buy life. I can buy stuff. I can buy clothes. I can buy holidays. I can buy cars. I can buy houses and technical stuff. And I can then succeed at life because I've got more stuff than someone else. And we tell ourselves this story that we can succeed if only we have more things. Or we tell ourselves we can succeed at life if we just fix it, if we just manage it better, if we overcome, if we climb that mountain, we overcome that problem, we face those challenges and we nail it because we succeed at life if we can just be a little bit more effective, work a bit harder, work a bit smarter. Or we think we can succeed at life if we can understand it better. We can explain it better. We can get a good education. We get some good qualifications. We can get some good thinking in place. We can philosophise and we can consider what that might be. And we, we, can, we can take time to process and think and think, I can succeed at life if only I understand it better. Or sometimes people think, I'll succeed at life and I don't need Jesus. I don't need these ancient words. Sim, why are you preaching about 2,000-year-old preachers? What has that got to do with me today? We don't need Jesus. We are, we're above all that. We are so much more advanced as a civilization than people who sit on hillsides and listen to a rabbi seated on the floor. They can't see him or hear him properly. This is a terrible way of doing things. And you expect us to take note of these, these texts, these verses. I can succeed at life without God's help. I don't need him. But when the music fades and all is stripped away, we realise beneath all the understanding, beneath all the life management, beneath all the programmes and the stuff, when it all gets taken away, we need God. We need him. We need, we realise we are poor in spirit, that we are limited. And we cannot truly, we cannot truly live a full life until we empty ourselves and realise our need for God, that we need him. 
that idea of almost that I mentioned about the begging, that we become beggars. God, we are desperate for you. We need you. It's not one or it'd be nice if desperation. You've seen those images on your news around the refugee crisis at this moment in time. And I always, when I see those stories and I study those images of families particularly, and I've got four of my own children, what does it take for someone to put all of their belongings into a couple of bags, to gather their young family and to say, we're going to walk for days, maybe weeks, maybe months, and we're going to go somewhere we've never been before, to people we've never met before, to speak a language you've never spoken before. And we are so desperate, we are so needy that we're going to leave everything we've known to put everything we've got into a couple of bags and we're going to hope for a better life somewhere else. I think the desperation of a refugee should be the heart of a Christian. That is so desperate for God, we'll do anything we can to get to where he is. That we can recognise that we have nothing. We are poor in spirit. That we are dependent and we desperately need to be dependent upon God. When we're at the end of our rope, when we're at the end of our natural resources, and I think in the Western world, we just have so many resources before we realise how limited they are. It takes us longer sometimes to understand that those things don't rescue us. They don't save us. They don't help us succeed in the life we've been given to live on this earth. When we realise our need for God, that's when we move from the world's way of living, of self first, me first, to the kingdom way of working, which says Jesus first every time. That's the way of Jesus. When we understand that we are nothing without God, that we need to beg for him, like a man in a desert begging for water, like, a, like a, uh, the deer that pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Are you like that today? Are you desperate for God? Do you recognise you are poor in spirit? The only way to succeed at life is to hand over the reins, hand over the steering wheel to Jesus and say, we have nothing to offer. You have everything to give us and we trust you. Dallas Willard says these words. Dallas Willard says, blessed are the spiritual zeros the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those that are wisp of religion when the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. You're blessed when you know you're poor in spirit because the kingdom of heavens comes flooding in and gives you all that you'll possibly need. Let's get the worship team back up as we wrap this together. Matthew 5 verse 3 is our verse for today. You're blessed when you're the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you're the end of your rope. It's time to let go. It's time to stop trying. It's time to put our trust in God, to give ourselves fully to Jesus, to let go of our stuff and give it fully to God. At the start of this year, at the start of this series, I would encourage you to be somebody who is letting go and letting God. To be leaning forward. That's when you take a next step. You lean forward before you take a next step. And so I'm giving it all to you. We need to get on our knees and recognise our limitations. 
the God we expect doesn't always show up. We get disappointed when God doesn't do what we think he should do. And then we become ungrateful when God doesn't do, or when he does do what we think he should do, as if he's under our control. But no, we need to recognise that he needs to become greater and I need to become less. Not to be reliant on our own ability, our own circumstances, our upbringing, our education, our finance, our wealth, our relationships, our pension portfolio, our career. We need to be fully reliant upon God. And I want to encourage you in some moment, we're going to invite the band to lead us. And I want to encourage you to take some time to reflect upon this. That I'm inviting those in locations and those who are watching from home to, to take communion as an opportunity to remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us. That we are poor in spirit. That we are the end of our rope. But because of Jesus, through him, we have a connection to a Father God who has got more than we'll ever need. And we can truly succeed at life when we get hold of him. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.